Hi, I'm Rhys T. Matthews, and this is Queer Margins. This is the last episode of Series 1, Old Queens, and it's episode 17, Rupert. It was my first real relationship, I suppose. And then when that's lost all of a sudden, and not just lost, but then your own life is at risk. Mm. Yeah, it just, well, it wrecks your life, but you then climb out of that and try and make something out of it. Colin from episode one introduced me to Rupert when we were at an event for the National HIV Story Trust. And a week or so later, I went round Rupert's house in South London to chat to him. Rupert's a psychiatrist and has been living with HIV since the early 80s. And he helped set up what is now the UK's leading HIV charity after his partner, Terry Higgins, died at the age of 37. On the day that this episode has been released, the 10th of June, Terry Higgins would have been 75. In this episode, we spoke about Rupert's life now, his work, seeing his partner die of an illness no one understood, and the difficulties he came across when trying to set up the Terence Higgins Trust, plus a lot more. So, here's Rupert. I really sort of came across it when I was a sort of probably a teenager, by which time I'd already known I was very different for several years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, it was starting to sort of fit those pieces together. What does that mean? Yeah. You know. So when you realised that you were different for, like you'd realised you were different for a couple of years, was that like worrying to you then? Did you, like you were aware that you were different but you couldn't identify it? Yeah, it was that I did things that uh, other boys didn't do. Yeah. Um, I was the only boy in my knitting class and my embroidery class, well, for instance. Okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, I loved sort of design and drawing and, and uh, music. And uh, I certainly could play sports, but I it wasn't really something that interested me. And I didn't like the sort of the rough and tumble aspect of it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so I knew there was some. Yeah. I, you just get this sense that there's something different. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, sure. I knew from fairly early on. Um, and your, you mentioned you had a gay uncle. Mm. Um, so was he? Did everybody else in the family know that he was gay, or was it? Well, uh, I think my mother did and my father did, uh, but he was—he uh, didn't live in England. Okay. Uh, and he—I think, I think he lived in South Africa. Um, so I, yeah, I think I met him once as a small okay. child. Okay. Yeah. But that was it. And he wasn't particularly a reputable character either. Oh, really? So, yeah. It was only my 40s that I learned that he was actually a trafficker. Oh, my God. And uh, he had a black boyfriend. He was white, or ostensibly white. Um, and I still don't know what, or, yeah, what sort of trafficking he did. But um, it was... And I learned that in my 40s. Yeah. So did you ever tell your parents then? Well, about being gay? Yeah. Well, uh, my mother died when I was 13 and I had no, no, I had no real cho- chance to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my, <laughs> how my father came to know is, is a little bit of a story which I'll be brief about. <laughs> anyway, uh, I finished school early, uh, secondary school, and I had a gap year because I'd done an extra term at school but wasn't ready to move on. Right. And so he found me a job in Germany, in, in Hamburg, with, uh, because he was in the publishing business, and uh, so through contacts he found me a job in Germany in a publishing uh, warehouse. 
So uh, I went and uh, this, there are lots of details that I'm leaving out, but anyway, my boss turned out to be gay Right. And uh, he was about 36 and I was 17. Uh, anyway, he eventually sort of made a pass for me. And um, I was sort of more than happy to accept. Uh, so that went on. What he didn't tell me is that he had a partner. Oh, yeah. And his partner was the psychiatrist for the head of the company, who was my father's friend. Oh, and he moved his partner out and moved me into his flat. And I was, I was underage. I was not 18 yet, and it was, it was illegal. In Germany as well. In yeah. Germany, yeah. And, yeah, well, the, the proverbial hit the fan. Anyway, so um, I was going to come out to my father. Uh, I'd come out at school when I was 15, but I hadn't told my parents. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, my father... Anyway, so uh, then uh, one of my sisters told my father in preparation for me telling him, which of course meant that I didn't have to tell him. Right, it's like, it, it, was she trying to be good or was it? Uh, she was, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, at that time it was, it, I didn't feel it was helpful, but it was, it probably was. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, so the lucky thing is my father has been a very liberal person. Uh, and uh, he had already stood up for um, colleagues of his who were gay, although he certainly didn't welcome it. Uh, he was very, very good about it. Mm -hmm. So credit where it's due there. Mm -hmm. Not the best way to come out. <laughs> and did you, really. did you stay with that guy? Uh, after a year, I moved back to Britain, uh, and, uh, and then very shortly after, I met Terry Higgins. So, um, yeah, and started dating Terry. Uh -huh. Well, that's quite a nice so, sort of yeah. amicable yeah. end to something that was yeah. quite nice, isn't it? I was only due to be there for a year, yeah. although my, the, my first boyfriend tried to encourage me to stay in Germany and to study there and right. go through university there. Uh -huh. I, uh, my German wasn't good enough okay. by any means. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I had misgivings. Um, and you mentioned when you came back from Germany, then you met um, Terry Higgins. Yeah. Like, how did you meet? Well, it was in a club like on uh, on Tottenham Court Road, I think. Uh, Bangs. Uh, yeah, and I met Terry. I think the first during the first handful of times I went there. Uh, and it's, I mean, yeah, I could tell you uh, sort of more about that, but it's it's. Was basically, I noticed this um, clony guy with a big black moustache and a check shirt, and uh, and I, which is exactly what I like. Uh, and uh, he had a really weird way of dancing. Okay, uh, in what way? Uh, it was just very sinuous and sort of <laughs> slinky, and it wasn't the typical. Uh, and uh, anyway, so yeah, I just sort of, I can't believe my 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 ballsiness but I went over and said hello okay. so um, is that not like you? no okay. no no it wasn't like me mm -hmm. uh, I've changed somewhat <laughs> but uh, yeah anyway so and that's that's how we went and that's okay. where it started what yeah. kind of club was bang? just a just a disco really okay yeah. cool yeah. Um, and it's how did meeting him change your life then or, or how did it affect your life um, so relationship yeah, it was it was very it was very interesting. I think I think 
what it did change my life absolutely and radically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a uh, in an alcoholic household. My mother was alcoholic, um, and there was violence uh, between my parents. And um, it was uh, my parents separated when I was about seven or eight. And I was farmed out to various members of the family at those times who really didn't want me. Mm. Um, and so, so that was one thing that, that kind of informed my character as a, as a kid. And I was very, very responsible, very um, overly responsible and sort of had a very strong sense of duty in what I need to do, I ought to do and shoulds and... Uh, and, of course, I felt responsible for things that were completely out of control, such as my mother's drinking um, and, again, the, the, the violence in the household. And it was all because I hadn't done well enough. Yeah. And what, kids in alcoholic households very, very typically learn this, that the problems they've experienced around them are their fault. Uh, and learning to unlearn that is a real process. It takes quite a lot, lot of time and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't, uh, when I was a teenager and through my, to my mid-twenties, I hadn't started unpicking that. So, um, when, when Terry died, it was, uh, I had a sense of that I needed to do something about it. Um, and well, I, I guess it's probably worth going going back, sort of giving some more context too. Yeah. But um, when he died, I I, I wonder so what what the hell had happened? How is that possible? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's thirty six, within a period of months, to die from something that nobody knows anything about, um, and then shortly after, why was I dying? Because I had the same illness. Was that what's happening? And then, how do I stop it? Uh, what do I do about it? Yeah. Um, and uh, that that was um, the time when Terry's friends uh, and I decided to set up the Tensigans Trust, mm-hmm. or what became that. Um, but that's a, that in some ways, that's a different story. And so just to go back as well, so when did you, when did you find out that you had HIV then? Well, uh, after Terry died, um, uh, when I was 19, I started getting sick. Right. And uh, I was told it was probably the same thing. And I spent one year at my first university in Durham and then switched to London. I was allowed to shift to London to be near medical specialists. Uh, and they had no idea what was wrong with me, but they, uh, a long story short, basically they gave me about a year. Mm. Um, and it was uh, such that, you know, I was 19 and I was, there was flights of stairs up to the flat where I was living with my father at the time. And I had to sort of pause on every floor and sit down because I was too exhausted to go up further um, and I yeah I was just extremely ill with sweats and weight loss and um, yeah it was 
It was really hard. So you 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 thought you were going to die then? Yeah. No question about it. Yeah. The uh, and I met some of Terry's uh, physicians a, a year after Terry had died, uh, as part of setting up the um, uh, the Tenant Signs Trust. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Oh, well, we thought you'd be dead by now." And uh, and they also said, um, when I asked them, okay, so what exactly did Terry die of? They said, well, you're not family, so we can't tell you. Uh, but we did his autopsy, and we're publishing it in a medical journal, so you can read it there. Uh, and that tells you a lot about the uh, attitude at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when did you realise that you weren't going to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was, gosh, how old was I then? I think probably around, Lord, that's a good question. Probably when I was about 40, 42. Oh my God, I thought you were going to say like early 20s or something. No. That's such a long time, like, I, I, it is obviously, like, I'm, it's certainly obvious, but that's such a long time to think that you're going to die in the next, like you could, yeah. within the year like well there's no way it moved from within the year to within two years yeah and then eventually it was oh probably five years I've got mm-hmm. okay but like you don't that must affect you obviously it affects you massively because you, yeah. you're never planning for yeah. the future no you have to live this double life one is where you're not burning your bridges to the future well to the future if you will uh, and uh, where you're doing out of pure faith, well, what I, what I was doing out of pure faith, which was including my studies, saying, well, if I live for some reason, this is the work that I want to do. Mm. And at the same time, trying to make sure that every day counted for what you did. Yeah. Uh, and that means, uh, f- for me, it was uh, AIDS work. Activism, looking after people, um, education, um, whatever I could put my my shoulder to. I don't think I'd, I'd have it in me to um, maybe to do that sort of like AIDS work, that sort of thing, because I would feel like it's more short term. But I don't think I'd have it in me to go to university and to you know work on a future that I might not have. I don't think I think that takes quite a, like a special person. I think. Well, I think, I think part of it was that uh, a big part of it was, first of all, my character mm-hmm. uh, and that sense of duty, but also that fury. Yeah. Um, and that fury had been uh, triggered by my experience of physicians uh, around Terry and then around my own care. And I realized that if I were to ever be able to speak up and say something and change the way things are done, which clearly needed to happen, and they clearly still need to happen, but in different ways, then I had to get qualified. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize is that, yes, qualifications are essential, but they don't guarantee that you'll be heard, because it's all about power, prestige, and status. Mm-hmm. And uh, for which I have very little respect. <laughs> you mentioned um, the physicians 
uh, the way they like dealt with Terry. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Was was there a lot of negative? Like, did you experience a lot of negativity around that? So, uh, yes, I did. Um, and it's uh, example, simple example is that after Terry died and we're setting up the trust, I wrote to um, Professor Alan Cranston, I think his name was, or, um, and to say, could we um, please know exactly what Terry died of? We're setting up a charity in his name, etc. And um, as you'll know, um, I was his partner and this, that, and the other. And he said, well, he wrote back and say, uh, well, when you've got the charity set up, then perhaps I'll send you some information. But until then, no, because you're not his family um, and you're not entitled to any information. Now, this was, given the fact that Terry had no family, um, except for some grasping cousins who had tried to find out if he had any uh, will, and uh, when I said, well, no, he left nothing, and I've had to collect the body, and I, I myself, have had to pay for the funeral, um, they hung up on me. So, at every turn, there was this sort of attitude of, who are you? Yeah. yeah. Okay, you have to do the hard work, the dirty work, and, uh, you know, clean up the mess, uh, but who are you? Mm. Are you somebody we should listen to? Yeah. And uh, that, uh, that has been consistent mm -hmm. uh, over the years, particularly from physicians. Mm -hmm. um, and how old, how old was he when he died? 36. Um, and why did you, why, what was the purpose of setting up the Terrorist Trust? Basically, in a nutshell, it was so nobody else had to go through what I and Terry's friends had gone through. But... But then there was no, was there, was there a better understanding at that point of what HIV was? Or was there HIV no? hadn't been discovered. So what, so I'm struggling to like understand, you know. Why did we do it? Yeah, why yeah. did we do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had heard that of this American disease through some of the gay newspapers. Right. Uh, I thought that this is what it was. And I suggested it to his uh, physicians. Right. Uh, and after Terry died, and I was told that I also had this disease, whatever it was, and it was well, yeah, almost certainly this American disease, I said, right, Terry died of it, I've got it, other people are going to get it. I don't know how, what it is, how I've got it, uh, but it's not going to stop here. So what I've got to do is try to make it stop somehow and do something uh, because this is, this is going to be, I didn't have the word epidemic or even pandemic then, mm -hmm. but this is going to be a big problem for the gay community. This is going to devastate us. We have to do something. Yeah. And so I just found myself in that position um, you could say the wrong place at the wrong time, but I had to. I had to do something about it. Yeah. I'd grown up with a sense of duty and a sense of outrage at injustice, mm -hmm. and uh, both of those played into that. Um, how long was he sick for then? Terry was sick for only for about six months. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was quite short. That must be difficult for you 
afterwards when you found out that you also had HIV, but it didn't have it. It wasn't even called HTLV three then. Was it? No, okay, no, so. it was called GRID. Right. Gay related immune deficiency. Okay. Which actually says something in itself. I mean, have you ever thought of hearing about a disease called heterosexuality related? You yeah. know, something yeah. or other. Exactly. They wouldn't think about it. No. They've got no idea how pejorative that is. Mm-hmm. I think what a, a, lot, a lot of it was, was very poor science. A lot of it done in clinical journals and therefore by physicians mm-hmm. who really didn't understand the, the, the principles of science. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, and a lot of prematurity. Um, and you still see that today with, oh, latest cure for HIV just around the corner. Maybe by 30 years. Yeah. You know, and the only reason why those headlines go, uh, go like that is to push careers. It promises nothing. Some of these moves forward are really important and they're very solid, you know, bricks in the road, but they are not the end mm-hmm. of the road. Yeah. And the only reason for the hoopla is money and prestige. So, like, when you found out that you had this great... <clears throat> Seeing your partner die in six months, that must have been, like, I don't know, like, your world was, like, shattered around you. Yeah. Um, so, how long had you two been together? It was uh, somewhere between 12 and 18 months. It was very short. Yeah. And it was very um, intense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I learned a lot from Terry. And... Uh, uh, and I still had some of the memories there are still some of my fondest memories yeah, um, yeah. that sort of 12 to 18 months is such an amazing time in any relationship isn't it and to have that come in like 6 months before the end of it is well yeah I think it was uh, it was my first real relationship I suppose yeah well f- first relationship was getting towards something that was real I mean mm-hmm. when you're a teenager you have very intense passions Mm-hmm. Um, for better or for worse uh, and as Terry was that passion for me mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and um, yeah and then when that's lost all of a sudden and not just lost but then your own life is at risk mm-hmm. yeah it just it, well it wrecks your life but you then climb out of that and try and make something out of it so there's a lot around about um, loneliness, and you mentioned alcoholism and substance abuse and stuff like that in the LGBTQ plus community. Why do you think that is? Or do you think that LGBT people are kind of like a bit damaged and that's why they go towards these things and that's why you talk about, you know, risky sex, that kind of thing? Or is it something else? Well, we've known for maybe 20 years uh, at least um, that there's a significantly higher rate of, let's use the term, substance abuse in the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the reason, we understand the reason for that now. When you grow up different in a society where you're not accepted for what you are, it leads to damage of your sense of self. And it's an experience of uh, exclusion and implicit rejection. Uh, We're not wanted as we are, and uh, we're therefore not actually good enough. And our emotional and sexual orientation is not obvious to other people, obviously. It's 
it's not something like skin color or hair color that can't be hidden. Well, hair color can be, but you know, yeah, skin yeah. color can't be. Um, so uh, as we become, and most of us know that we're different before the age of ten somehow. Um, so becoming teenagers, uh, and then we discover other people like us, and we try to take part. Um, but the rules are different. The, 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 these aren't heterosexual rules. Um, they're not sort of uh, heterosexual friendship rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's different. We don't know what the rule book is. Um, we also feel we've missed something and they try and catch up with it sometimes, especially if we come out later in life um, and try and over, overcome the isolation that we've had all our lives from just that sense of being different. And like anybody, we want to be wanted for who we are. We want to be loved. We want love. We want fun. Uh, and we want something to make this, this stressful mess called life to make it meaningful. Now, in the LGBTQ plus community, there are accepted ways to do that. Drinking, taking drugs, increasing our entertainment value and our likability through witty conversation and humor. Um, Our value as sexual athletes Mm -hmm. um, and building up our bodies. All of this to protect a sense of inner self that is fragile and in many cases is damaged simply by growing up different and in an isolated sense, in an isolated way. So, um, and trying to take part in this is so that we feel valued and wanted and what we didn't have growing up. And it's the key to stopping our previous loneliness and our isolation. So, particularly alcohol, uh, drugs, uh, but also other um, uh, sex itself, Mm -hmm. uh, become tools that we rely on. And uh, we continue to rely on them after the fun has worn off, after they stop helping us, uh, because it's part of what we do in that environment. And um, if we stop doing them, we feel diminished. So these so-called solutions start to fail us but we don't have alternatives. We've not actually been able to see what's driving them, mm-hmm. which are historical mental issues. And uh, it's, it, and we can't really start to do without them that easily. We have to address those things. Did you say that um, you were diagnosed with AIDS as well? Yeah, I was diagnosed with AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and then three months later, I had the stroke, and it was quite a separate, uh, oh. quite a separate issue. Yeah, yeah. But it was more than enough to handle. Yeah. I, yeah. And when were you when were you diagnosed with AIDS? In '93. And how did that affect you? Well, I had an interesting uh, experience when I first got to Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had recovered from the initial infection period somehow. I'm not quite sure how. Right. Uh, some people do. Um, and anyway, it takes a while for HIV to really bite. Mm-hmm. I went to a uh, went to um, a Chinese herbalist who teaches at Harvard, and um, uh, Ted Katchuk. He's written um, a book, really, really good. 
And so he uh, treated me for a while with um, Chinese herbs. And after, I think about, gosh, I can't remember how long it was. But anyway, after a while, my T-cells had gone up to, your average T-cell is 400. Mm -hmm. Below 200, it was, it used to be an AIDS diagnosis. My T-cells went out to 1100. They were really raring and strong. Had some side effects, but okay. Then I went to uh, see a a boyfriend I'd split up with, and uh, apparently he uh, had just been infected with HIV, uh, and he was very angry with me, and he raped me. And I got infected with the strain that he had, and within three months my T-cells were 90 and uh, so I got a very virulent reinfection and uh, got diagnosed with AIDS at that time. Three months later I had the stroke, then I had brain surgery and then I had to learn to walk and talk properly again and um, uh, you know I'd lost my career, I'd lost my job, everything. Uh, I was also due to be deported and um, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a bit hard. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how that came up, came around. It's a lot to recover from in that year. Yeah. 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 And um, it's, uh, so I do know what it takes to uh, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So when was, when was the last time you had a, a large involvement in the Tony Sickens Trust? Well, my relationship with the Charity Higgins Trust has varied over, over the years. After I left um, England in 84, after it had been initially set up, um, I stayed in touch with Tony Whitehead in particular and uh, would see them at um, AIDS conferences. And I was still apparently a trustee at that time. Um, eventually that changed as I stayed in America and sort of moved away. Still see them at AIDS conferences, and that was great. Uh, and then uh, Nick Partridge um, um, came onto the scene. And uh, when I moved back to uh, the UK uh, via Holland, actually, for a while, I uh, then saying, well, okay, I'm, if there's anything I can do to volunteer, yeah, great, let me know. Um, they didn't like my independent viewpoint at that point. Which was what? I was critical. Right. Critical of uh, things that weren't working right and saying I, there need to be solutions for this. Uh, and there was quite a lot of chummy or palliness with the Department of Health, uh, which wasn't doing its job in terms of ensuring that uh, good programs were being uh, done. Uh, At that time, THT was uh, acting like a bully Mm -hmm. and um, it was really uh, damaging its reputation. So uh, after having finally got fed up with various uh, complaints to me about it, uh, where I had absolutely no... Yeah, you had no involvement. I had no I uh, got in touch with the trustees and said, there's a problem here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was brushed off. Uh, And so I 
um, went and did basically a forensic report on it. <laughs> I did, interviewed people, I identified the issues, I, people were sent f- to talk to me from within THT to shut me up and quieten me down, and they ended up um, giving me the information I wanted, uh, agreeing with me, mm-hmm. and uh, so eventually when my report went to the Board of Trustees, they couldn't say no. Right. So as a result, uh, Nick Partridge and Paul Ward left, and uh, there was a, uh, then an inter- uh, kind of intervening period. And now under Ian Green, it's, it's, from what I understand, it's been wonderful. It's completely turned around, back to connect with its original values and working with other organisations. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> I'm now a patron of the organisation. <laughs> I just think it must be such a strange situation to be in that a partner of yours who died, that his name is repeated all the time. Yeah, I compartmentalise them. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the Terry I knew um, is just very, very different mm-hmm. from anything that t- with, of my experience with THD. Um, so I guess just my final question is, like, what would you say to younger people, younger queer people today, or, or do you have, like, any advice? I'd like to offer some, mm-hmm. uh, and as always, take what you like and leave the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the primary thing is the equalities we have now, such as they are, they're fresh and they're fragile, mm-hmm. and they could easily be rolled back or eliminated. And whether we want uh, to believe that or not, I think that is true. So we need to be careful mm-hmm. to make sure they're not. I think the... now. Um, there are also, uh, I guess, what be a, a number of maxims that I would say. Uh, the first one is life is often a mess. Um, it's not easy, uh, but it's never been meant to be easy. There is no way that it could be easy. Uh, but it's about balance in that mess. Uh, and that means for every success, there will be a failure. Um, and to learn to live with that positively. Also, one of the most important things, I think, for younger uh, queer people is that don't ever think that you're the only one ever to experience something or that that thing is morally bad. Uh, the only bad thing that I can see in life is gratuitous unkindness and the selfishness that comes with it. And um, never be afraid to seek help. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode, and thanks so much if you've listened to the series. The support I've had while making Old Queens has been really overwhelming, and I also just want to say thank you to everyone who took part in the series and agreed to be interviewed, particularly those who said they'd be part of it very early on. During lockdown, I've been recording interviews for a new series, which I'll start publishing very shortly. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can by following on Instagram, at Queer Margins, or drop me an email at queermargins at gmail.com. And once again, to everyone who's given me advice, agreed to be interviewed, and to those who've supported me while putting this series together, thank you.